Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Plus. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. I've been uh, extremely well the past few minutes. <laughs> Since our last recorded intro, I getcha. Yep. And, uh, and Lance, for this episode, we speak with a couple of colleagues, real wonderful advocates, Laura and Brooke from The Fall Line. They are wonderful peers to have, uh, Laura and Brooke. And we decided that we wanted to speak with them about their uh, their season about uh, Samuel Little. Uh, they are focusing on the victims of Samuel Little. Samuel Little, of course, is the most prolific American serial killer in history. You can read up on him. But if you want to learn more about his victims, why they were put into a victim position in the first place, and how he managed to pull off so many crimes in such an incredible amount of time— you should listen to what they say on uh, their new season of the Fall Line podcast. 
And they're also trying to match some of these drawings. So Samuel Little has confessed to over 90 murders, and he has been linked to some of them. And he's actually making drawings of his victims. And again, so these are real people that he has drawn, and they have been. some of them have been matched to real people out there. So you can help if you've known any of these people. So it is very important, I would say, to listen to this season of The Fall Line, follow them on social media. Again, you might be able to help resolve some of these missing person cases. And this just goes to show you every time cases break, every time news breaks in in our genre here, especially a big one like Samuel Little, it's never cut and dry. And you always find out that if you're able to make a change in this, if you're able to create some sort of positive movement, uh, you should do that because these moments pop up a lot. Uh, They popped up with the Golden State Killer and they're coming up with uh, Samuel Little. And it is because of the work they're doing at the Fall Line Podcast. So go to their website, the Fall Line Podcast, and you'll see these drawings and maybe there is a connection that you can make there. Okay, great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to check out the fall line and follow them on social. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, Laura and Brooke of The Fall Line. What's going on tonight? Not much. (laughs) It's, you know, 8.36 p.m. So for us, uh, mostly children in bed. How about you guys? Oh, I I just had a wonderful dinner. Uh, Started the the dinner, uh, looked at the clock and was like, oh my goodness. I got to get up there. We got we got Brooke and Laura, and uh, no better way to end the the evening midweek. So tomorrow we'll be getting through the next half of the week, and this is a great, I'm going to say, catapult to Wednesday, and I I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having us back. Yes. And in your new season, you're covering the case of serial killer Samuel Little and uh, his many unknown victims. And uh, I'm so glad that you have chosen to do this deep dive into Samuel Little because I feel like this is something that can really, th- there's a lot of help that the public can can do for this case. We decided to tackle this subject because we are not interested in Samuel Little as a person. We're interested in the victims of Samuel Little. And there's 93 known victims, except only 60 or so of those victims have been identified and resolved in terms of their cases. So there's still 30 odd victims who we're looking at who are unresolved. And those include unmatched confessions and Jane Doe's. And in terms of the South, Samuel Little was an extremely prolific killer and more than half of his killings occurred in the South or roughly half. And a number of his unnamed victims are in the South. And because we cover the Southeast, it seemed to us that that would be perfect to focus on because he has very little sort of media presence in true crime already um, as a figure, and his victims have zero presence. You know, we've heard of Ted Bundy, we've heard of his victims, but people can't name a single victim of Samuel Little. And they certainly can't name the Jane Doe's that we're waiting to match. They haven't heard of the unnamed confessions. Maybe they've seen the portraits. So we thought maybe we can try to start kind of connecting the stories to those pictures and trying to circulate them out in a new way. 
And what is it that you think um, is one of the factors in him not getting that media coverage and the victims not getting their justice or their media coverage? Or is does it matter? Are you just zone, like honed right in on 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 your your mission here? I mean, it's it's multifaceted, right? I mean, he's he's gotten a fair amount of media coverage in terms of being prolific. You know, 93 people. And I think for at first, a lot of people thought we were looking at another Henry Lee Lucas situation where someone was confessing to a lot of murders, but we'd find out eventually that they hadn't actually committed them. But it became clear very soon to people in law enforcement that he had indeed committed these crimes. And as it became clear, they realized that he was the most prolific killer. So the question then became how and why? And we always want someone to have been an evil genius. We want someone to have gotten away with something only because they were a rare species. He's not a rare species. He was able to operate on the margins of society and hurt people who were vulnerable, and he traveled. And because he killed women who were often sex workers, um, he killed women of all races, but many of his victims were black. He killed women who were often under the poverty line, and he left town right afterward. He was able just to get away with it for 40 years. He killed for 40 years. And if I could add on there, you know, the, the sort of question about the media coverage, it's, again, I always feel like it's a chicken or an egg situation. Is it that audiences are not interested in these stories or is it more that the media sort of assumes that they're not going to be interested in the stories because what we have found is that once these stories get out there the listener response is oh my gosh I had no idea I'm so glad to hear about this I feel like maybe the media underestimates the listening audience in terms of uh, the variety of people they would like to hear about I think mainstream true crime media is behind all that in general. Don't you guys? Yeah, I do. Yeah, podcasts are actually seem to be faster than anything. Yeah, because our audiences want to hear that stuff and yours do too. Yeah, and and I remember we did an episode um, kind of covering the the news story of when Samuel Little was arrested, and we had like no other information to go on. We kind of we did a live um, a live version of our show, kind of uh, online streaming the the day that he was arrested, I think, or the day after. The comments that we'll still get on that YouTube video are like, "WTF? You guys talk? You guys know nothing about this case?" And we're like, "Yeah, we know." Um, but I think when it first broke, it felt like it was, it felt like too unbelievable, didn't it? Like, it, it, it was like, oh, th- this guy's, oh, by the way, this guy you never heard of is now the most prolific serial killer uh, you've never heard of. And he's killed 90 people and you just have to accept that now. And he's drawn pictures of a lot of his victims. I have to say it wasn't so much surprising to me uh, after the fact. It was right when it happened, and it was shocking, right? There were so many victims and so many uh, potential victims. But once it set in, like once it settled in my brain, I was more depressed that someone like this existed because I think somewhere deep down I knew someone like this existed. I knew it would be easy to go to marginalized parts of uh, this country, find marginalized people, find uh, minorities, sex workers, and just indiscriminately get away with it. And and to me, I was like, holy shit, that actually does exist. It is a nightmare. 
everything was settling in, I'm like, wow, there there is a there is a, a, a human out there doing this to marginalized people. I think there's a more than one. I think that that's the scary thing about him is that there's probably plenty of them. He just was probably one of the most transitory people I've ever researched. He moved um, daily, weekly for 40 years. Gary Ridgway got caught because he stayed in that small area, you know, and he still managed to kill on the margins upwards of 70 people. If I'm getting my numbers right on Ridgway, I think it's around 70. I mean, and if Ridge, imagine if Ridgway had moved throughout the country, you know, he would, it would be in this little kind of situation. But I think what it, what attracted us to covering this is that we always go, how did this happen? And of course the answer's right there. And it's because we shove people to the margins and we ignore them. And if they make a report to the police, it doesn't get followed up on, or they can't report to the police or someone's afraid to tell someone their relative's missing, or it doesn't get, you know, and it's just the same kind of cycle over and over again. That's how it happens. And he was aware of what, uh, of this, that he was choosing oh, yeah. his victims for that reason. He, all he told, he says it straight out. He picked people that no one would look for. And, um, Brooke was able to interview a really wonderful woman named Amy Hutzel. Brooke, Amy told you something really specific about that. Didn't she? Yeah. She said that, um, you know, in in her understanding of Samuel Little, he chose people that he thought would not be missed, but the reality of it that she had found out by meeting all of these families is that he couldn't have been more wrong. These were beloved people. They were absolutely missed, um, and their families were left grieving and, you know, devastated by their loss. And and Amy Hutzel is one of the people involved in Georgia initiative to close some of these cases. And she was involved in a couple of the uh, cases we talked about in episode three. Are, have you explored the communication between law enforcement because this did cross so many state lines? What it took to bring all of this together in the communication that must have happened? Uh, because now he must be uh, up on charges in multiple states and, um, you know, what what law enforcement agencies are involved in this? It started in L.A., to my understanding. I'm not an expert on this part of it, but in Los Angeles, you know, he was extradited from Kentucky. He was staying in a homeless shelter in Kentucky, and he was extradited in, I believe, 2011 or 2012 to L.A. to face some charges. Um, and he wasn't actually extradited for murder charges. It was to get him out there for the DNA, I think. And then he was eventually convicted of three murders in Los Angeles. And that's when he was um, introduced to James Holland, the Texas Ranger. And it's James Holland who's the one who got him drawing those portraits. And it's James Holland who he actually kind of connected with. And it's James Holland who arranged for him to begin to kind of talk and sort of facilitated his discussions with these departments all over the place. So it's been a mix of people hearing about Little and then going through their cases and then seeing if they match up. And also uh, Holland and the Rangers and the FBI contacting agencies and saying, we have a confession. Can you go through your cases? So it's been both of those things. Yeah. And so I guess what happens when he confesses? Because it seems like it's not like uh, he gets convicted in, in every case where he confesses. It is so dependent on the state. 
You know, we've seen all kinds of stuff. I mean, sometimes they're going forward with charges, but I don't think anyone's really looking to extradite him because he's serving life in L.A. You know, he was only in Texas, really, to complete his work with James Holland. And so he's back in California. So some people are pressing charges. Um, Others are just really interested in trying to identify where bodies are. Um, families, you know, looking for resolution. So it's kind of all over the place. You know, there are some court cases that are ongoing still, but obviously that's been complicated by COVID. Um, If you go on YouTube, you can see some of the stuff that's happened even since his LA conviction. So there are still some things happening. Yeah, there's this, uh, this news article from from just recently from in October, um, Patricia Parker. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this story? So this was actually... Really amazing news to get. Jane Doe's are a big area of coverage on our podcast to begin with because it's hard to cover Doe cases, so people don't cover them often. So we really try to focus on those. The Dade County Jane Doe is the case of a woman that was found in um, Georgia, but they believe she was actually from Tennessee and was brought over county lines. That is something that was really common with little and not original or unique to him at all. Um, truckers do this often. You know, there are a lot of truckers who are serial killers. That's why there's the serial killer highway initiative. You know, I'm not just making it up. Wish I was, but little would often take people just, just over the state line to confuse people. And, and it worked. Um, but this woman's body was discovered in Dade County, Georgia. Um, and she was a Jane Doe for nearly 40 years, but, In late 2018, kind of two things converged at the same time. One was that Little was confessing to Georgia crimes. And another was that the GBI has this fabulously talented forensic artist named Kelly Lawson. She's been on our show before. um, And if you've ever seen really amazing forensic art on our Instagram, it was her. Those really beautiful sort of pastel drawings that look like they should be in a museum it's her that does them and also those really good clay reconstructions she was doing reconstructions and uh, some sketches of the day county jane doe about the same time that samuel little confessed to killing a woman in tennessee and dropping her over the state line well they took those sketches to samuel little and he didn't like them too much he said that it didn't really look like the woman that he remembered So they were a little uncertain about whether or not they had matched the right case up, but they put them on TV because, of course, Samuel Little means news. And a woman named Patricia Parker's family saw the forensic bust and said, this looks just like Patricia. They got in contact, DNA testing was done, and they just announced this past Friday that it's her. She was from Chattanooga, and they were able to use her son's DNA. Her adult son, who thought that she'd run off and left him as a child, found out that his mother hadn't left him. And that it was just this massive resolution for the family. Um, Everyone involved in the case was extremely emotional at the press conference. And the idea, I guess, that just seeing that forensic bus was able to trigger that, you know, And the name Samuel Little was enough to get it on the news. It was sort of the two things had to happen together. Samuel Little actually hadn't done a portrait of this Jane Doe at all. So there would have been no art to go with it at all. We would have just had that confession if Kelly Lawson hadn't done that sketch. Wow, that is is, uh, really impressive. And that's um, really inspiring, too, in a way. 
Well, that's a pretty uh, incredible story. So glad that uh, this case is still making news. And there was another article you sent us here, and uh, it was about the murder of Patricia Mount. And uh, this is one that he was acquitted for the crime? So there's kind of two that get discussed together a lot. Samuel Little, we kind of imagined that he was this invisible man, right? Just sort of skulking around the country, never getting arrested. It's not true. He was getting arrested all the time. He was doing stints in jail, getting arrested for shoplifting. All in all, I think he did about 10 years, if you add it up, while he was out and about. But he was actually brought to trial for this particular murder. He actually um, ended up killing two women really close together in different states and was actually arrested for both of their murders and got off for both and then continued killing for another uh, 22 years afterward. But the story of Patricia Mount is particularly sad for a few reasons. Um, This was in Florida, and at the time, he was actually traveling with his girlfriend. Um, Samuel Little did have a long-term girlfriend. Her name was Jean Dorsey, um, and she was 70 years old. Sam Little was 40. So that's something that, yeah, he he met her um, right after he got out of jail. And what they would do is they would support themselves by shoplifting. And another kind of odd aspect of this is they were traveling with a teenager that they had picked up at a motel. This sort of 18-year-old kid who was living at sort of like an extend-to-stay hotel with his family. He didn't have much going on in life. And Gene Dorsey said, hey, if you come with us and you do some of the driving, uh, we'll pay you, you know? So it's a way for him to make some money. He, of course, had no idea what he was getting into. Um, And if you listen to the podcast, we actually have some really old archival tape of him being interviewed by the police. And it's pretty clear that he knew something was going on, but not the extent of it and kind of didn't want to know. But they ended up in Florida. And while they were there, Samuel Little would go out at night and kill while he was with Jean Dorsey and staying with her and this young man. And then in the morning, she would clean the car. As far as the young man knew, Jean Dorsey and Sam Little never talked about it. But she'd get up every morning and clean out that car. And he'd go out again at night. And I mention this because in the case of Patricia Mount, she was a young woman who was cognitively disabled. And she would hang out at this local bar um, at this area they were in in Florida. And Sam Little picked her up from the bar. She actually had a husband who would come pick her up at night. But Sam Little talked her out of the bar and ended up killing her in a rural area and it was just a very violent death and the scene was terrible and also the car was of course in really bad shape afterwards and the young man remembered Jean complaining the next day that she couldn't get it clean and so they were just driving around in this car you know that was stained from these violent acts and so that's just this really visceral kind of image and he was actually arrested for this eventually Um, and enough people saw him at the bar, you know, he was seen by people. He wasn't sneaking around. He'd hit on a few other women before he set it on her, um, and they turned him down. But after he was arrested and he was using his alias that he used a lot at this time, which is Sam McDowell, after he was arrested, unfortunately, there just was not a lot of evidence to connect him to the crime. There was some hair evidence. Um, we know how that goes, you know, hair evidence. 
And ultimately, he was acquitted. And both the prosecutor and the defense attorney said it was a weak case. He was extradited right after that to Mississippi to face charges in the death of a young woman named Mindy LaPree, who'd ended up in Mississippi after a really turbulent family life. Um, Her brother said that they had just suffered a lot. Her mother died. Her father was really abusive. And she just moved out with her boyfriend, and she was supporting them both through sex work. And that's how she met Sam Little. And they actually went to a local cemetery um, to use drugs, and he murdered her there and left her there. And she wasn't found for weeks, and by the time she was found, it was difficult to identify her. And when she was identified, her brother felt like the police just weren't interested in pursuing the case because of her line of work. So... Sam Little, a.k.a. Sam McDowell, was actually arrested eventually, though, for this. But the grand jury decided not to indict him just because, once again, there was not much evidence. So those were two times where he was brought up on murder charges, but there just wasn't a lot. But one thing we found out was that when we spoke to a records officer in Florida, cops had been communicating at that time. So when she was going through her files and she was finding stuff on, say, Patricia Mount from Florida, she found letters from cops as far away as, say, Arkansas writing back and forth about this guy and saying he may have killed multiple people. Of course, a complicating factor is they're all writing about a guy named Sam McDowell, not Samuel Little. Right. Right. So the the communication probably takes a little bit longer back then. They probably have no idea that someone's using that particular alias. I mean, they probably assume he's using an alias, but how are they supposed to know what alias that is? Uh, it's amazing to me that someone can get arrested twice for murder. I mean, what don't you have when you're, a, you're an arresting police officer that the grand jury is looking for and says there's not enough evidence here? I mean, I feel like were they rushing into it? Did they did they arrest him because they were rushing into it or? I have not been able to find any sort of like, you know, grand jury stuff is always kept so quiet, you know, but honestly, I'm feeling like they had nothing because this is a trial in the South and it's a black man and a white woman, you know, and that is a trial that's going to be weighted towards sort of a racist outcome in general. So the very fact that they let him off is I'm assuming they had very little. I mean, they must have had nothing. Yeah, that that would be my assumption just because of the way the South runs. Yeah, we there's not many details on it. They thought it was him and they kept tabs on him, but they just didn't have anything. I mean, with, with each one of those, the, the number is astounding. With each one of those, he must have gained more and more confidence, probably got a little bit sloppy and then even thought to himself, I can get sloppy and they're still not catching me I, I because of the, the, the pool in which I am selecting from. There is one case where we talk a lot about serial killers, that how they kind of get into that state where they start making mistakes and they get caught. We feel like Samuel Little kept doing that and it just didn't happen. Like he once left a victim on a riverbank and his car got stuck in the mud and he had to call a tow truck. And he got the car towed and it was fine. You know, he once strangled a woman with a police officer passing by slowly. You know, just like this stuff happened over and over again. And so I think you're right. He probably did feel invincible. You know, what it reminds me of is uh, a pretty decent movie about a serial killer called The House That Jack Built. Have you ever seen that? 
it's it's not bad, but it's it's a it's about this serial killer who is like literally making every single mistake and he's like there's something in the universe that is just protecting me because i i can't like i'm i'm catching all the breaks here you know i i spill blood everywhere and all of a sudden it starts raining and the blood washes away it's a it's a pretty interesting um concept and i think uh i'd never heard of it until talking about little here because how do you do this without something just always like something's always going his way I guess all I can say is that he he did get caught, you know? Yeah. He just, it, it might just come down to the victims. And I think that's where we keep coming back to is how closely are people going to investigate those crimes? I mean, there are people that will, but there are a lot that won't. And And also... Thinking of a different victim, perhaps a more high-profile victim, if their family reports them missing, instead of being told, as in the Fredonia Smith case, when her family reported her missing three days after she had disappeared, they were told by the police that she had probably run away because that's what Black girls do. They run away from home. If it were a more high-profile victim, for example, the woman in the cemetery, would she have been found earlier because they would be canvassing and the neighborhood would have organized and there would be groups looking and walking along hand in hand. And so they find her before her remains have decomposed in such a state. And then when they do find her, they may be taking it quite seriously if it were the mayor's daughter or the town beauty queen. Um, and so they may have been looking for evidence um, with a, a finer tooth comb, um, I think a lot of factors just build up to get to a place where he is brought into court and then walks right out again and goes on to continue killing for decades. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Yeah, for sure. And and he's killing um these nameless, faceless people and, and you said that it was your intention to focus on them with uh your coverage of him. Obviously you have to speak with some members of their family or their friends. What's your approach when you are reaching out to somebody that you know has, you know, one degree of separation from one of his victims? You know, that was actually quite difficult in this case because a lot of these crimes were so old. Um, many of the families had lost touch with the victim for decades and then just were called out of the blue by a sheriff's office, a police department to let them know that actually this guy had just confessed to killing their loved one which is just so shocking after all this time. Um, so we did reach out to family members, you know, using my training um, in mental health and trauma to try to do so in a way that was the least jarring as possible. And many of the families, um, the family members did not want to speak with us, which is completely understandable. So in our case, we used a lot of already archived interviews um, with 
local media in their towns. In one case, we were able to speak with um, one of the women's brothers. His name is Eddie Lee Smith. This is the case of Fredonia Smith, and I can tell you a little bit about that one. Um, this one happened in 1982 um, in July, and Fredonia, do you, Laura, I didn't even write down where this one is. Macon. Macon, Georgia. So she was 18 years old. Her brother described her as just a completely normal, loving, fun, wonderful sister, 18-year-old, loved music, loved dancing, and loved just hanging out with friends. Um, she, that evening, wanted to go out and get some ice cream at the corner store. She borrowed some money from her mom, and she left on foot. Um, when she got to the corner, witnesses saw her getting in a car, and her brother believes, her brother was later told by the police that she was riding in the car with her boyfriend. They got into an argument, and she sort of jumped out of the car and started walking. After she did so, Samuel Little pulls up, and he sees her, and he starts walking behind her. He starts following her. He's coming on to her, um, and she was, she was not interested. He made a pass at her, and she apparently hit him, <laughs> and so they started getting into a struggle. Apparently, she put up a really good fight. Um, he actually said that she was getting the best of him until she she slipped, her footing slipped, and she fell, and that was when he was able to overpower and kill her. Um, her brother, this is the young woman who three days after called to report her missing, and the police essentially were just not interested at first. They told her that black girls run away. Um, they told him that, I'm sorry. Um, so it took three months for them to discover her body and all that time her family was looking for her and in fact the area that she would end up being found in, which was a local park, a city park, her brother Eddie Lee had actually been sitting on a bench fairly recently to the discovery of her body because he had been looking in that park for her. Um, her family knew something terrible must have happened. So all these years after her death, Eddie Lee assumed because she had gotten into the fight with the boyfriend, he assumed that her boyfriend had been the one to kill her. Um, and, and then three decades later, he gets a call, um, you know, from the sheriff's department telling them about this guy. He's in Texas. He, he admitted to killing her. And Eddie Lee did not believe it because he was so um, familiar with believing that this was her boyfriend. Um, but they let him know that Samuel Little had given details that only the killer would know. Of course, he knew exactly where her body was. Um, so speaking with him was really just heartbreaking. Um, the, the sentiments of a bereaved relative who just so very much loved his sister and wished he could have done something to prevent her death is just so, so sad. Um, he was really amazing to talk to. He talked about 
wanting to be able to forgive Samuel Little because in his faith, he believes that it is imperative for him to cleanse his soul. Um, and he talked about being able to get into heaven and the importance of forgiving him. And he said he, he just keeps praying because he's trying and he wishes that he had. It just hasn't quite happened yet. So he's just going to keep trying and, and do his best. It's just unbelievable. And this is just one. This is one out of almost 100 of these stories of these families and these women and everyone who loved them. It's really unbelievable. I can't imagine like the ripple effect that happens. It really puts it into perspective when you say this is just one of almost a hundred and that's one person affected by one victim, but that person who's affected is also affecting somebody else. And that person, it just, you know, the ripples get a little bit smaller as you go outside of the circle and then you multiply that by a hundred and then you multiply that by how many victims there were. I mean, you're talking over, I mean, easily over a thousand secondary victims that are still suffering because of this guy. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's real. it's, it's, uh, I mean, even hearing the story of somebody almost overpowering him and, and just by chance slips again, that goes to the, he's just catching all the breaks, right? He's just, he, he almost gets overpowered and then, and then this person slips and, and that's when he's able to, uh, overtake her. I mean, even that, like we're, we're hearing that story, even that affects me, like listening to that, that's, I'm not by any means saying I'm a secondary victim, but you tell these stories to people and it has a, it has a lasting effect. I just sent Tim, a, if you guys want to use it, I sent Tim a picture of Fredonia. Um, we did like a little photo collage. Just there's something about her when you see her face. There's just, she's, Brooke, you know the picture I'm talking about, right? Just her smile of, I sent, I sent it to you on Insta. Um, okay. But like, just like the, the smile on her face, you'll see why I sent it to you. That's why I was trying to show it to them. I forgot you had your camera on. I didn't mean to disrupt you. <laughs> it's, it's hearing her brother talk. Um, it's just really sad. Now, what about this one where uh, Little talks about a, a trans woman named Marianne? Little did have victims that were trans women and an added layer of difficulty in identifying a trans victim, especially because we're looking at a woman named Marianne. And this would have been 1971 or 1972. And we know the massive transphobia that people deal with now. Just imagine 1971 in Florida. A 19-year-old girl in Florida, she's living right outside Miami um, in an area called Liberty City and going into Miami for work and stuff. And she's living in a house full of roommates. So this is a situation that's kind of unique in that Samuel Little met all of her friends because he met her out in the city and then actually dropped her off at her apartment. And came inside and one of her friends actually asked them to run an errand to the store to go pick something up. So he had a chance to like see and speak to several of the people that she lived with. And it wasn't until they went out on that errand that he killed her and he took her body out into a area that was heavy with vegetation. It was very similar to the Everglades. It's not the Everglades, but it had a similar kind of um, feel and left her body there. And a lot of our listeners wondered with all those people who were at the apartment, because she had probably four or five roommates, you know, she had a boyfriend and Samuel Little even remembered his name, why no one had maybe reported her missing. 
kind of forgetting what it probably was like with her roommates also likely being part of the LGBTQ plus community in 1970 or 1971 in Florida, how dangerous that was and how worried they might have been to report, how to report and what that would have looked like. So looking at trying to investigate the case of Marianne um, has been, I think, extra difficult for those reasons, especially with the kind of misgendering that would have gone into a police report had her body been found. You know, there's just there's just so much stuff there that makes it hard to find her. If you know, what was the kind of estimate of how many transgender people were, I guess, out at that time? in that area? I have no idea. Um, I think it's really hard to look at history of the LGBTQ plus community, especially in different towns. You know, um, I did speak with a few people that said there were a couple of different bars of places and people we could talk to. Um, but that was actually when we were looking a little bit at Mississippi. I mean, we couldn't even find out the name of a victim who was buried under their dead name in Mississippi. We couldn't even find out their name, you know, much less like perhaps what the scene was like even 10 years earlier in Florida. But we knew that the scene itself was probably pretty small and pretty insular. I mean, just for protection, you know, to be a black trans woman who's 19 years old in 1971 in the South. So, Um, Little has not been interested in giving an exact location of her body. When people have asked, he said things like, you'll never find Marianne. I'm not sure why he enjoys that except for the power aspect of it. You know, he says her body's a mile or two outside of Miami. But that's one case that I wanted to touch on because I think it just kind of shows how difficult it can be to try to match a case. Because if Marianne was reported missing by her friends, you know, they would report her as Marianne. But if Marianne had been reported missing by her family, she might have been reported missing, you know, in a misgendered way, which would have totally complicated the police case. And those cases might never be matched. And depending on the uh, level of decomposition and, you know, the, the clothing might not be totally intact, that that body could be sitting somewhere completely misidentified completely completely overlooked they 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 could be looking for you know the identity of a of a young man yeah i mean it's there's so much range there we've had a forensic anthropologist on our show before to talk about like it's not nearly as cut and dry as people think in terms of identification yeah i'm really mad about that you you stole amy michelle from us oh what amy michael see See, she even changed her name. Yeah. <laughs> we we prefer to go with the French pronunciation of her last name. Oh, yeah. I forgot you guys know Amy. <laughs> yeah, we did. We uh, we met her um, at the UNH. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, we were uh, before the COVID. We were all going to be at some sort of event together. Yeah. Yeah. Before uh, before it all shut down. That's too bad. That would have been fun. Well, I have a question about uh, Marianne and. 
there's a fascinating transcript of his confession, which you forwarded for reference, and it is uh, James Holland, the Texas Ranger, who he confesses to. And it's remarkable to me. Uh, first, remind me, when was this confession? This was recent. Yeah, it's in the last couple of years. Yeah, last couple of years. And he's confessing to something from 1972. He's got almost 100 victims that he's admitted to, and he still remembers what color skirt she was wearing. He still remembers the type of skirt, the build, uh, 5'7", 5'6", right around like 135, 140 pounds, uh, remembers the boyfriend's name, he he. Do you think he remembered that with every one of his victims, or was there something special about Marianne? Um, I think Brooke will agree with me based on what we've read. This is pretty par for the course, right? Yeah, he he has a very remarkable and yet selective memory. Um, it seems to be photographic at times because the details he describes are things he would have seen with his eyes. Um. And yet, on the other hand, sometimes he'll have difficulty remembering what exact year um, something took place or where exactly in which state. Um, but, you know, as Laura has pointed out, he can, he can describe in detail what someone's neck looked like. It's really disturbing. He picks and I, I think he picks and chooses what he wants to remember. Um, you know, one thing that Brooke pointed out to me really early after reading some of his correspondence was that he's just into power, you know, and I think the fact that he does have a memory that seems to be photographic um, is a power thing for him. And I think he remembers what he finds important and what he finds important is what pleases him. He likes to relive these memories. He enjoys telling these stories. But he likes to be in the driver's seat when he tells the stories. He doesn't like to be questioned. He doesn't like to be challenged about the stories. He doesn't like to be called a rapist. Um, and a lot of times um, they will really specifically tell officers when they're going to speak to him not to call him a rapist. And not to talk about sexual assault. Um, he's fine with talking about murder. You know, he feels ownership over his victims. And part of asserting that dominance is the memory of the murder and his ability to describe it. That's part of his thing. So he just gets off by reliving murders over and over. Yeah, I think so. Brooke. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, one of the most repeated aspects that you can see over and over again in his confessions and also in his correspondence with people from prison, um, is just the very classic narcissistic viewpoint of a psychopath. Um, he sees this from his perspective. He described these women as his babies in heaven. And he said, I love them and they love me, which is just um, an incredibly um, blind view of their experience. Um, just very classic. He said they're mine, you know, there's like, as there's some echoes of the Zodiac there, you know, that whole idea of like having people, you know, after death, they're mine, you'll never know where to find them, things like that. He, and you know, he says my girls, he'll sign letters, Sam and his girls sometimes. And you know, it's, it's a dominance display. 
Yeah, it's a it's a dominance display. You don't he doesn't really believe that, right? He doesn't really believe that they're waiting for him in the great beyond and they love him. He's just saying that to to stand out, to be dominant, right? You know, I I don't know that I could make that um firm of a stance on it. However, yeah, their conquest. One thing we noticed that Brooke and I talked about a lot was that his drawings, while some of them will have features that are very indicative of the actual people when when you see them next to a photograph and we have some, he completely chooses coloring, hairstyle, clothing. Like you can't base skin tone, for instance, in one of his portraits. Um, on the actual skin tone of the victim he can't base eye color he chooses based on his whims and i think that also speaks to what she was just talking about you know it's all designed for him what it reflects we're we're still not quite sure yeah there's also one other aspect um, of his personality that i thought was very illustrated by the case that laura was talking about where his car got stuck in the mud he had a woman's dead body right there and he called a tow truck and he very coolly just talked to this guy. This guy came, yeah, I'll help you get your car out of the mud. That is very classic psychopath. They do not feel nervousness in the same way that we do. If we were, for example, going to shoplift or something, we might feel this rush. We're going to get a, a rush of adrenaline. Ooh, fear. Ooh, I'm doing something bad. The psychopath can be doing something that they know is wrong and have absolutely no physical um, experience of it in terms of nervousness or jittery, anything like that. Um, I just thought that was a very good example when he described that incident. That was a good way for us to see that as a symptom of a personality disorder. One thing I wanted to say real quick is because of all this stuff about Samuel Little and man, is he an asshole? That's that's why we wanted to call the series The Victims of Samuel Little. We spent the first episode laying out what people wanted to know about him. And then after that, we wanted him to be a ghost in this series. We wanted him to be on the margins of the series. We wanted him, if he ever heard this, we wanted him to hate it. Because he would be in the background and the victims would be in the foreground. And that was the goal that we set out with, with this series, was to bring them forward and to honor the people whose cases have been resolved and to try and get attention on the cases that haven't been resolved. Because the one thing that frustrates me about serial killer media is that we're all studying the serial killers. And I understand why, but why aren't we studying the ways that we can protect the people that they kill? Because it's the same groups of people over and over again the vulnerable and the marginalized. And that's what's interesting to us. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. If you were to take a cross section of uh, every serial killers uh, pool of victims, try to figure out what the, what the common characteristics are. 
in society, I'm, I'm sure that would be a very productive uh, process. That would be a very productive experiment. And I'm wondering if there is like a database or anything that lists all of his confessions and maybe like a status level for each one of those. Does that exist anywhere? We we have our own informal one. Um, we have a research assistant who has a, a pretty complete one. Um, but right now, uh, we have a pretty complete database um, just for the fall line of like where the various cases are at. And I think they're at about 60, 60-ish resolved out of the 93. Oh, that's that's a really good ratio. Don't, don't quote me, quote me on that, but that's my rough estimate. It's too late. It's too late. We're recording on Zoom. I should, we have a, a research assistant. I should have been texting because he would know, but yeah, 60-ish. So I do have a serious question. By making Little the uh, the ghost of your series and, and setting him apart from the victims and focusing on the victims and focusing on what we have to do to protect those people who are in those situations, what do you suggest has to happen? Uh, because this has been something that has been going on for generations and people who are in these marginalized situations don't know how to get out of them. They or they they know where to go. They know what's better, but they don't know how to put the pieces together. They're not able to do that because of their situation. It's and they have to live day to day and they they don't have the tools to 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 move in in a you know a more productive uh, to get out of that danger in in a more productive direction. Decriminalize sex work. Yeah. And I would say also even maybe we might be able to start thinking of it differently. There are certainly people involved in sex work who don't want to do it and can't find a way out. There are also people involved in it that um, do, do not feel that way. They don't feel bad that they are doing sex work. It's helping them support themselves. They feel good about it. I think not only a change in legal status, um, but also maybe a change in how we think about it as a society. Yeah. And I would even add on people who are uh, habitual drug users. They're the... um the overdose facilities, they're the using the user tents. I don't know if you've seen cities where ha- they have uh, monitored using. You can you can go and and if you're an addict, you can you can do it and you're monitored and and then you're worked that you're you're worked into a system where you have a counselor and and then you're you're you go through the steps to uh, hopefully maintain sobriety. But just getting to that facility is is huge. It gets you out of danger. It it gets you away from the elements, all elements. You know, monsters like little, <laughs> right down to you know just uh, freezing to death on the streets. You know, it gets you somewhere safe. All of that stuff. You know, all of I mean, it, it's big institutional stuff too. You know, poverty and racism and so many other things. You know, and arrest for drug use and lots of other stuff but most of his victims were sex workers not all but most of them were sex workers and he was able to kill them because of the nature of how sex work has to be run in our country you know so to me decriminalization you know not not legalization because what i've heard from many sex workers is that decriminalization is preferable to legalization which can cause bigger issues sometimes 
this is just what I've read. You know, I'm still learning, but that that would be a big step. And like Brooke said, also normalization of sex work as work. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Laura and Brooke, uh, this is uh, this is a great conversation, and uh, it's really important work that you're doing, and we'd love to help in any way we can um, help try to help you guys try to match some of these uh, these images, these pictures, and uh, some of the, the victims. Oh yeah, if you guys um, could share to your stories some of the Jane Doe's and the Unmatched, that would be wonderful. Um, and I can get with Michelle as always; she's always wonderful, and maybe do some sharing there. Great. Yeah, we we have all the um, sort of portraits and side by sides on our website for anyone who's interested. I I love being able to go to one place and see them all. What would I do if I was a listener and I'm interested in this and I and I check out these portraits? How can I be productive? How can I work with with the fall line and and just work to be productive to to help out? just as a active listener. One thing that some listeners have been doing is some listeners who feel like they have some spare time have been looking at databases of missing persons and they've been looking through state databases, you know, and they've been looking at pictures. Some people have been reading up on cases. So they've been looking at cases from those approximate years, but maybe there's no pictures. Um, Some people have been sharing on social media. Some people have been sharing on social media and tagging um, big YouTubers have been tagging. We'll tag anybody, you know, just tag these Jane Doe's, um, share the story, share the pictures. Some people have been writing to their local news stations and asking them to feature the unmatched confessions because that's who's going to see them, right? We need someone in Chattanooga to see the Jane Doe so we can have another Patricia Parker. Any of that would be great. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.